Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. While you're turning there, uh, I just want to again say a huge thank you to Sam. He is over there behind the camera. He is making everything work as far as sound and technology is concerned. Also, Michaela is over there behind the camera, and she is making all of the slides go. Uh, they've been working together on this all week long, late nights, uh, in, late hours into uh, midnight. It's just been an amazing effort on their part. And so uh, I just want to ask you guys to uh, thank them, text them, uh, encourage them, give them a phone call, and thank them for everything that they've done in making this work uh, and bringing this message to you this morning. Romans chapter 5. Uh, my wife and I had the privilege, as many of you know, uh, to travel to Idaho a few weeks ago, spending time with our dear friends there. We had an amazing time. It was such a great time fellowshipping together before all this coronavirus stuff happened. We were able to hang out with them, enjoy sweet fellowship with them. And one of the blessings of our time there is spending time with their two sons. They have two precious little boys and we got to hang out with them. Their oldest son is two years old. He's soon to be three years old. And I had a blast. He was so much fun to play with. We, we wrestled, we played football, we read books together. And one of my favorite moments uh, of spending time with this precious little boy was as we were reading a book together. We were reading, we were opening the book, we were reading together. I was uh, just showing him the pictures. And he looked up to me and he said in the cutest little two-year-old voice, he said, Mr. Patrick, you're different. <laughs> and I said, yes, this is a very true statement. I am very different, and I'm glad you're realizing that. I am very different. It was so funny because their parents were kind of mortified that he was saying that because they thought that I would be offended. I'm not offended by that. I am very different. I know it. You all know that. So I thought, this is hysterical. And he kept on saying it, and his parents kept saying, he's never said this of anybody before. He keeps saying it to me, and he's never said this before in his life. And we kept asking him, what do you mean by you're different? And he couldn't tell us. He just kept saying, you're different. My favorite moment was we were playing hide and seek. It was uh, him and I on one team, his dad and his brother on another team. And we were together uh, hiding. And I said, hey, where do you want to hide? And he said, let's go hide underneath this dining room table. So we went, we moved the chairs, we hid under the dining room table, and we hunched over together, and we were kind of giggling together. And he said three things, just perfectly clear in the cutest little whisper. He said, Mr. Patrick, this is the best hiding spot ever. They're never going to find us. You're different. <laughs> and he just kept saying that over and over and over again. You're different. In a way, that's exactly what should be said of Christians, especially today. You're different. You're different. You're interacting with this coronavirus differently. You're interacting with the, the fears and the concerns differently. The way that we live, the things that we live for, what satisfies our hearts, all of these things should set us apart from the world. They should not be what the world loves, what the world wants, what the world views as their greatest satisfaction. And the same should be true about how Christians experience trials. We should experience them counterculturally. The way that we go through hardships, the way that we go through trials should not be the way that the world goes through difficulties. If you're wondering if you're going to face any difficulties, well, I think that the coronavirus is a helpful reminder that difficulties come. We cannot safeguard ourselves from trials. D.A. Carson said it this way, all you have to do is live long enough and you will experience difficulties and trials. Some people think that Christians won't ever experience trials. They think Christians are immune from difficulties and trials. 
But John Murray says the Bible leaves no doubt that sufferings and difficulties are a normal part of Christian life. We all experience trials. The question is not if we're going to experience them. The question is how will we experience them? How will we go through difficulties? How will we go through trials? How will we live through these moments? I don't want to have to go through them. I wish they didn't happen. As Frodo said to Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings, in The Fellowship of the Rings, he said, I wish that this need not have happened in my time. I wish this didn't happen. Gandalf said, so do I, and so do all who live to see such times as these. But that's not for us to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. What are we going to do with the time that's given to us? What are we going to do with the coronavirus time that's given to us? What are we going to do with this trial that's been given to us? How will we interact with it? How will we experience it? What will we believe? What will we think? What will we live in our faith? How will we live it out? That's the question that is posed to us this morning, and I believe our text in Romans chapter 5 answers it, that the norm for us is not the norm for the world. The way that we interact with trials should be countercultural from the way that the world interacts with trials. So this morning, I want to look at three countercultural responses to suffering and trials. Three countercultural, counterintuitive responses to suffering and to trials. Let's read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. But not only this, we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance brings about proven character and proven character brings about hope and hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Father, we ask your blessing on our time this morning. Uh, Maybe as we watch the world around us just going through chaos and panic. Maybe we we look at them and we we think, uh, that's not me, I'm not struggling with that right now. But God, we know that trials are going to come and they are going to shake the foundation of our souls. And so maybe it's not this trial. Maybe it's going to be another trial. Maybe it is this trial. And God, I pray that in this season that this message would go forth to our hearts in such a way that we would take comfort, take hope, and take heart. But God, I know that we are promised in your word. We're promised trials. We're promised suffering. We're promised pain. So God, I pray that you would just instill some some rebar into our souls, fortify us for the days ahead, that we would live counterculturally in the midst of trials, that we would have a hope that just does not make sense to the world, and that we would share that hope with everyone around us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be our guide and our teacher this morning. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Romans, uh, written by Paul, as you know, uh, the first four chapters 
are just the, the foundation for the entirety of the book. It's a, a treatise really on how we are saved, that we need salvation, that all of us are under the wrath of God because of our sin. There is a penalty that all of us deserve and that God and God alone has made a way for us to be saved. We can't save ourselves. There's no work that we could do. There's no act that we could perform. God does the saving by his own grace through our faith in him, which even the faith that, he, that we have to believe in him is a gift from him. After four amazing chapters of dealing with salvation coming by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of God alone, Paul tells us in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have all of this understanding of our sin, of God's salvation, we know that we have been justified by faith. We have peace. We know because we've been justified, we've been declared righteous by God himself, the one that we were in trouble with, the one that we offended and sinned against. He has declared not guilty. He has declared perfectly righteous. Therefore, we're no longer in trouble with God. Praise God for that. We are on his side. He is on our side. We are with him in his family. And because of that, Paul is going to say our experience as believers, even in the midst of trials, should be radically different than the way the world goes through them. So three different ways that we should be countercultural in the midst of trials. Way number one, we can have joy in the midst of our trials. We can have joy in the midst of our trials. This is in verse three. We can have joy in the midst of our trials. Starting in verse two, Paul says, we've obtained our introduction by faith into the grace. It's the gift of God that gives us this grace, that gives us salvation. And we stand, we're not moved. And we exult in hope. Exult, not exalt. Uh, Exalt is to lift up, to praise. We have exalted the Lord through our singing. That's exalting. Exult is a different word. It's a different Greek word. Exult means to explode with emotional joy, to be so happy with something that you can't contain it. You can't keep it in. Exult. And obviously, we exult in hope of the glory of God. That's heaven. We exult in the hope that we have in heaven. We explode with emotional joy. This would be like if you found out that some of your best friends got engaged and they text you and they say, we're engaged, you would exult, you'd explode with emotional joy. If you found out that you got that promotion that you were looking for in your work and you got a raise and you're secure even in the midst of this crazy time, you would exult, you would explode with emotional joy. Or if you watch football and or anywhere other than New England, you would be exulting in the fact that Tom Brady is leaving the Patriots. You would exult in these realities, exploding with joy. But Paul says we're going to exult in things that aren't obvious, that aren't specifically things we would pick to explode with emotional joy over. Obviously, heaven is one of them, yes, but verse 3, not only this, We don't just exult in the hope of heaven. We exult also in our tribulations. It makes sense in verse 2. We exult in heaven. I can't wait to go to heaven. We will finally be in a place where there's never a pandemic ever again. But Paul says we also exult in our tribulations. The exact same joy that we are looking for and having as we long for heaven in verse 2, exulting in the hope of the glory of God. That same joy we have in the midst of our trials and tribulations. This this makes no sense. This is an oxymoron. You guys know oxymorons, right? We've got 
Things like jumbo shrimp, doesn't match, doesn't make sense. Act naturally. Seriously funny. These are oxymorons. This, in verse 3, Paul is writing a theological oxymoron. We are happy and exploding with joy in the midst of trials. When everything's going bad, we are happy. That makes no sense. But that's what Paul is saying. We can exult in our tribulation. Well, do we have to go through tribulation? Can we escape this? Can we escape going through them? Well, we've already said that there's no way we can escape it. Uh, We've quoted a couple writers that say that. What about the Bible? James chapter 1. You remember James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brothers. What does he say next? He says, when you encounter trials. I wish that James had written, if you encounter trials, because then at least we have hope we might not have to go through them. But James says, when you encounter trials, you will go through trials. You will experience trials. They are going to happen. So we need to have a strategy to be able to exult. But Paul says, if you know the foundation of the hope that you have in Christ, of the gospel as your foundation, you can exult in the hope that you have that God is doing something in the midst of your tribulation. You can have joy in the midst of trials. We don't grieve like the world grieves. We don't experience loss like the world experienced loss. We don't get sick and we don't die the way the world gets sick and the way the world dies. Why? Because we have connected in this passage back to verse 1 and 2. We have a knowledge of the fact that God himself has done the hardest thing, which is making us who are his enemies, turning us into his friends. That is a hopeless situation to be in. We have no hope on our own to make ourselves friends of God. And therefore, since God has done the hardest thing, then when we are going through hard times, we know it's an easy thing for God to bring about something amazing through that trial. So instead of being despairing, despondent, sorrowful in the midst of trials, we have joy, countercultural to what the world experiences. And can I just say, I would encourage you to do this. In the midst of this insane season where the world is just panicking and going crazy and there's chaos all over the place, be wise, obviously, be wise, and submit to our governing authorities, absolutely. But brothers and sisters, we have a hope. We have a peace that surpasses all understanding. We do not have to fear anything that's happening. And therefore, the way that we experience this trial should be completely flipped from the way the world is. I was talking with somebody a couple days ago over the phone and just saying, and this is just a weird season. It's almost like this strange adventure that we're going on. And they said, hmm, adventure. I would never have thought to call it that. And I said, I think for a believer it is because what we're doing is we're going down a place we don't know what's ahead, but God does. And we know we are on his side and he is on our side. And we know that we're safe in his hands so we can have joy in the midst of trials. And can I just ask, if you are watching this, if you're listening to this, do you know that you are right with God? Do you know the, the hope that we have of heaven one day? We're all going to die. That's another blessing uh, in the middle of this craziness with the, the coronavirus. One of the blessings is death seems a lot more real to us. We're all going to die. And the question is, what's going to happen after we die? If we stand face to face before God, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? Paul's is, I have nothing to commend me to God. It is only God in his grace and mercy forgiving me, giving me faith to trust in him. That's the only way I can be saved. Jesus and Jesus alone is our hope. 
Do you have that hope? Do you have that understanding? Are you saved? And I would just plead with you, if you do not know with confident assurance that you are going to heaven when you die because of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, don't let this season go by without turning to Christ. Talk to one of us, email us, call us, text us, reach out to us, and make sure that you know the hope of the gospel because none of what we're going to talk about this morning is possible apart from the gospel being your foundation. But if the gospel is your foundation, then you can live counterculturally in the midst of trials knowing that you can have joy even when life is hard. The first thing that Paul tells us as far as our countercultural Christianity is that we can have joy in the midst of tribulation. We exult, we explode with happy, joyful emotion in the midst of the hardest moments in life. How do we have that? That's point number two. Point number two is how we have this joy. It's knowledge in the midst of uncertainty. Here's another countercultural, counterintuitive understanding for believers. We are given knowledge, number two, in the midst of our uncertainty. We're given knowledge in the midst of uncertainty. The world looks around uh, at at this crazy pandemic and they say, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's coming up next. And we say, I don't know either, but I know God's up to something. I know God's doing something. Notice what Paul says in the middle of verse three. We exult in our tribulations. How? How do we exult? How can we exult? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance brings about proven character and proven character brings about hope and hope does not disappoint. That word exult in verse three, not only this, but we exult. That's the main verb. We exult in our tribulation. And if you were to ask Paul how, he gives us this participle, knowing this is the modifier. We exult because we know. We have certainty in the midst of uncertain times. This is what provides our joy. Knowing. Knowing is what provides our joy. If you want the key to unlock the practical application of all the theology that you know into everyday living, if you want a key to unlock all the knowledge that you have here to everyday practical living it out, it's this word, knowing that turns into living. Knowing. We have knowledge that changes the way that we live our lives. Just turn back to chapter 2. I'm going to give you like a a little mini theology of Paul's knowledge. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. We We know God's judgment is right. He says we know that. And that knowledge is going to lead us to action. Go to verse 4 of chapter 2. Verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance? So if you do not know that the kindness of God leads to repentance, then you will not think deeply and enjoy the riches of the kindness and tolerance and patience of God. You have to know. Chapter 3, verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and the world may become accountable to God. We know our conscience bears witness to our hearts that we know we've all done things that are wrong. We know. Chapter 6, go to chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Do you not know? If you don't know that or if you don't truly understand it, it's going to change the way you live. Chapter 6, verse 6, we know this, 
that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. We know this. Chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as, as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Do you not know? If you don't know or if you do know, it changes the way you live. And obviously we could go on and on and on all the way into chapter 8. We know. Go to chapter 8, verse uh, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. We know. This is Paul's theology of knowing. And if you know something, then you can experience trials differently than the world. Because a trial for the world, it looks like they have no knowledge of anything and their uh, uncertainty in the midst of that trial, they, they are just with zero foundation, completely panicking about what's going on. But for a believer, well, we know. Sure, there's things that we don't know. There's plenty of things we don't know, but there are so many things that we do know. We know. One of the heroes of the faith for me uh, is a man by the name of Rick Holland. Um, he's co- he was the college pastor at Grace Community Church for several uh, years, for a couple decades. Um, he was... Uh, influential in my life in a number of, of ways, uh, sitting under his ministry, listening to his sermons, uh, reading a book that he wrote. Uh, we had the privilege of doing premarital counseling with, uh, with he and his wife. Um, I met, met with him on a number of occasions, even talking through this passage. His understanding of this passage greatly influenced my understanding of this passage. And there was one thing that he said while we were doing premarital counseling that was so impactful to my life. And it's something that I ask myself almost on a daily basis. Three questions that I want you to write down. Three different questions, and they go in an order. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? He said, Patrick, these three questions will change your life in the way that you deal with trials, and especially in the way you deal with relationships. Let me give you an example. I drive home after work. Uh, Not anymore, since I'm not out of my house, but I drive home when I'm normally uh, working out of the house. I drive home after a long day of work, and I'm exhausted. I'm so tired, and all I want to do is walk in the door and just lay down on the couch. I can fall asleep like that. I've had a long day. I'm exhausted. And so I open the door, and as I open the door, all three of my kids just come running up to me with requests. Daddy, can you play a game with me? Daddy, can you throw the ball with me? Daddy, watch what I've done. Daddy, daddy, daddy. Just constantly saying, please help, please, please look, please, please be involved with me. What do I feel in that moment? (laughs) I feel very grumpy. I feel very impatient. And I feel like I don't want anything to do with anybody right now because I'm exhausted and all I want to do is I want to sit on my couch. I just want to lay down. I'm exhausted and I'm tired and I just want to rest. What do I feel? Why do I feel that way? Well, what do I think? What am I thinking? I'm thinking that my kids have walked up to the door and they're thinking, dad's home and I know he's had a very, very long day and I know he's tired. So you know what? Let's just bug him. Let's bug him. Let's get in his face. Let's make sure that he can't rest at all. That's what I think about the situation, which is leading to my feeling of getting impatient with my kids. But what do I know to be true? What do I know to be true? I know, number one, I'm called by God as a husband to die for my family. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm called to give my life for my family. 
So my job is not to open that door to be served. My job is to open that door to keep serving. I also know without a shadow of a doubt that I have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me, the very same Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So if that Holy Spirit gave Jesus power to be raised from the dead, then that Holy Spirit can give me power to have a few more hours of enjoyment with my kids before I have to sleep. I know that God has given me grace. I know that God has given me grace in order to live out exactly what he's called me to do in every single day. There's mercies that are new every morning for the entirety of the day. I know God's given me all of these things. So what do I know? Now, how does that inform what I think and what I feel? What do I know? Based on all of those things that I know, what do I think? Now, I know that my kids are not trying to ruin my day. They love me. And now my thinking has changed. They walk up to the door. I open the door and they're just all up in my face and so excited to see me. And now I'm thinking, this is such a blessing. They just want to love, to love me and to be loved uh, by me. That's all they want. So now how do I feel? And I feel so overwhelmed with joy that I have three kids that love their dad that I have the privilege of having three children that I get to play baseball with, having three kids that want to read with me, that want to spend time with me. What do you feel? What do you think? What do you know? These three questions, I believe Paul would even ask or or put inside of chapter 5, where he says, this is what we know. What do you feel in the midst of a tribulation? You don't feel like exulting. You don't feel like exploding with emotional joy. What do you feel? Well, what's... Let's talk about what's going on today. Let's talk about the coronavirus. What do you feel? Maybe you feel scared. Maybe you feel worried. Maybe you feel unsettled. Maybe you feel like you don't know what you should feel. What do you think? You're worried because you're thinking, I could get sick. Somebody I know could get sick. But what do you know? What we know will change what we think and what we dwell upon, and then that will change how we feel. Paul says we know something which is going to change what we think which is going to change how we feel. So the question is, what is it that we know, Paul? What is it that we know that will enable us to exult in the midst of trials and tribulations? He gives us three things that we know. We know, number one, that tribulation brings perseverance. Tribulation brings about perseverance. Tribulation, he says. Tribulation brings perseverance. Tribulation is a Greek word that means pressure, Flipsis, it's, a, it's a, a word that's to press in on something, that there's a weight that's on top of you that's crushing you. And that's why he says perseverance is brought about by this tribulation. Perseverance is being able to remain under that pressure. It's being able to stay alive in the midst of pressure. Notice that perseverance is not getting out of the pressure. That's what we want to do, right? So often we spend so much of our time in the middle of trials trying to get out of what God has put us into. So Paul says, no, 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 you'll have perseverance. Stay in the trial. By the way, this changes how we we pray. We've been reading 1 Thessalonians. Paul isn't praying, God, get them out, God, get them out, God, get them out. Paul is praying that in the midst of their trials, in the midst of the persecution, that they would know the hope that they have in Christ. So we can say something like this and pray something like this. God, conform me through the sandpaper of your providence. You're shaving off those rough edges, and it's not fun to go through, but we know it's producing something. No pain is ever wasted. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. You know it. Uh, no temptation has overtaken you, but what's common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, and it's not what you can handle. It's what he can handle uh, through you trusting him. 
God's faithful and he will provide a way of escape. But notice the end of it. He'll provide a way of escape so that you may remain under, be persevered, steadfast in it. The way of escape is to, to stay under the tribulation, under the trial, under the pressure. But we say, I, I want to get out. Listen to the Puritan John Flavel. He says it this way. Affliction is a pill which, being wrapped up in patience and quiet submission, may easily be swallowed. Affliction is a pill which, being wrapped up in patience and quiet submission, may be easily swallowed. To be free from affliction would be no benefit to believers at all who receive so many benefits by being in affliction. If afflictions be the way through which we must come to God, then never discourage, never be discouraged in any affliction, trouble, or difficulty because they are to God of excellent use for us. They, they produce something. Don't try to run quickly out of the difficulties before understanding what God's trying to work in and through you in the midst of that trial. Paul says, we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. Number two, Paul says, we know that perseverance brings about proven character. He says it in verse four, perseverance remaining under that trial brings about literally proof. It proves something in us. Instead of us saying like Job's wife, you should curse God and die. If we remain in that trial and say, God is good. I trust him. He has good purposes. As that trial is pushing us, And trying to destroy us, God's using that trial to give us perseverance. And that perseverance, as we remain under that trial, that proves there's something different going on in us. We would be just like Job's wife if we didn't have the Holy Spirit in us. We'd be just like Job's wife saying, get us out, curse God, this is ridiculous. But if you're remaining in that trial, that brings about proof. God's doing something in your life. By the way, If God gives you tribulation, if God gives you tests and you don't pass those tests, you don't learn the lessons God has given you to learn, I can say from experience that those tests just keep coming back until you learn those lessons. It proves the character that God wants you to have. And then number three, that proof produces hope. That proven character produces hope that does not disappoint. This is what you need as you experience trials. Your hope is rooted in what God is doing, not in the cessation of the trial. We don't have hope that the trial is ending. We have hope that God's working. God's working. We have knowledge that God is up to something. We might not know everything that he's up to. For sure, he has an infinite mind. We have a finite mind. But God's up to something. And these trials make us long for the hope that we have that Paul declared in verse 2. We have a hope of the glory of God in heaven. We long for it. Trials make us long for heaven. Trials make us long for a place where these difficulties, we'll never, we'll never experience them ever again. And we will never be disappointed. I love the way that Paul says that in verse 5. Hope does not disappoint. It doesn't let you down. God will never let you down. So can I ask you, in the midst of your troubles, in the midst of your trials, do you have confidence that God is doing something that you can't see? Do you have confidence that God is up to something that probably makes no sense to us right now? In fact, if God were to unveil to us his perfect plan of why a trial or a persecution or a trouble is happening, it would blow our minds. 
That's why even in the book of Job, Job says, why are you doing this? God, answer me. And God never gives him an answer. God just says, let's go to the zoo. Let's look at some animals. And let me remind you, Job, that I made these things, and therefore I have a plan that is far beyond anything you could possibly comprehend. I love the way that Elizabeth Elliot said it. If you have a God who is powerful enough that you can get mad at him because he's not fixing a problem in your life, then you have a God who's also big enough that he has plans that you couldn't possibly understand. You can trust him. You can trust him. If you're getting mad at God in the middle of any trial you're going through, then you're getting mad because you believe he's big enough to stop that trial right now. Stop it. And he's not. But if you have a God that big to be able to get mad at him or frustrated or angry by what he's doing, then you also have a God whose plans are far beyond your, your highest possible comprehension. He's up to something. It's that old illustration. You guys remember the illustration of the quilt? If you look at a quilt being made on the back side of it, it just looks like a bunch of threads and a mess. It just looks awful. Like, what is happening? This makes no sense. But if you turn it around and you see the product on the front, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's a masterpiece. It's exactly what God is doing in the midst of our troubles. He's working something that makes no sense to us on the back, but we'll understand it one day in heaven. And even on this earth, in this life, God graciously gives us little pointers, little clues. This is why this is happening. This is a blessing in the midst of the trial. What do you reach for in your theological tool belt of knowledge when you're in the midst of trials? What what hope do you cling to? I want to study this uh, next week. Just kind of some practical verses that you can memorize, that you can cling to, you can write down to, to hold on to in the midst of trials. But the bottom line is if you don't know this book, If you don't know the Word of God and you're not in it on a regular basis, letting your mind be saturated by it and filled by it, then you won't be able to say with Paul, oh, I can exalt because I know. You're going to say, I'm struggling to exalt because I don't know what's happening. We know. Even in the midst of our difficulties, we know. Uh, Most of you would remember um, we had a little remodel that was done on our house. And during that remodel, there was dust everywhere. I mean, literally to this day, I can still go into my closet, pick up some shoes that I haven't worn in ages, and there's dust. The, the dust that was there when our roof got taken off, it's there. And obviously, I should throw those shoes away because I don't use them, apparently. But these different things, you see the dust just everywhere. I remember in the middle of the remodel, I was so frustrated by this dust. And I would, I would sweep it. The guy who was helping us with the remodel said, you know, Patrick, you just need to stop sweeping every single day. It's going to be dusty for a long period of time. Just get used to it. And I remember there was this one moment where it just, it, it, was, a, it was a switch that was flipped for me in my own brain. The dust that I so hated was a picture and a reminder to me that something is being done in this house that's going to be a greater blessing to me and to those who would come over to my house. I hate the dust, but it's a reminder that something's happening. The same thing is true in trials. Man, I hate the pain, I hate the suffering, I hate the affliction. But those are signs that God's up to something. We know, even in the midst of uncertain times, we have knowledge and an awareness that God is working, even when the world around us says, I don't understand what's happening. So Paul says, 
Two things. Uh, number one, we have joy in the midst of trials. That's countercultural to the way that the world works. Number two, we have knowledge in the midst of uncertain times. We have knowledge in the midst of chaotic uncertainty. And finally, point number three, we have comfort in the midst of pain. We have comfort in the midst of pain. This is the middle of verse five. We, we know because the love of God, we have hope that doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. We have the love of God being poured out within our hearts through his Holy Spirit that was given to us. It's amazing. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was struggling, when he was uh, sweating drops of blood. You remember when he was in agony contemplating the cross? You remember who God the Father sent to help him? The Bible says that God sent an angel to strengthen him, to get him ready for that task. When you and I are in the midst of trouble, in the midst of agony, God doesn't send an angel. Romans chapter 5, Paul says God sends his spirit. God sends himself, not an angel. And we're not even going through the magnitude of what Jesus went through at the Garden of Gethsemane. God sends us himself. We studied this in John chapter 17, uh, 16 and 17. When you're going through tribulation, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. God sends us himself. That's why Paul says that the love of God is poured out within our hearts. It's very interesting, love of God. In the Greek construction, it can either mean love that's been given to us by God, or it can mean love that we have to God, for God. And there's actually a way in the Greek that it could mean both. And I believe it means both. I believe that what Paul is saying here, if we could say it this way, um, that the love that comes from God and produces our love for God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we have comfort even in the midst of pain. Why? Because we know God has loved us and we love him back. That's again, back to that proven character. We have love for the one who is allowing us to go through these trials. Why? Well, Paul's going to tell us. Verse 6, Because while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. This is that classic example of you know, somebody diving on a grenade in the middle of uh, their army's tent, right? A grenade g- gets thrown in by the enemy and they dive on it so that they, uh, they die, but they protect all of their friends and comrades. Yeah, a, a righteous man might do that. A good man might do that. A, a righteous man might die for a good man that way. But God's different. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, his enemies, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus didn't jump on the grenade in his own tent. He jumped on the grenade in the tent of his enemies, dying the death that they deserve, that we deserve. That's enough right there. But then Paul says in verse 9, much more than, how do you get much more than Jesus dying for us while we're his enemies? Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. If while we were his enemies, if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This all brings us to the, the, the knowledge 
of comfort. We have comfort in the midst of pain. We have comfort in the midst of pain. How do we get this comfort? Well, Paul tells us it's the love of God being poured out into our hearts and it's the Holy Spirit being given to us. And this is all through the work of the gospel and the ongoing ministry of the Spirit and sanctification. We have a hope in the midst of trials because God gives us comfort through the gospel. Why do we forget the gospel? And why do we allow the sovereignty of God to so easily slip out of our minds In these moments of chaos, we just feel like maybe God's not in control. Why do we do that? Horatius Bonner says it this way, man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. Man's dislike of God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. Are you ever suspicious of God's heart? You ever suspicious of his goodness? Maybe you ask questions like, God, why me? I don't think that it's wrong to ask God why. Jesus himself said on the cross, why have you forsaken me? But I think that we should allow that why question. Jesus asked it differently, but we should allow that why question to be that, that those three questions, right? What do we feel? What do we think? What do we know? I feel like I've been abandoned by God. Wait, what do I think? I think that I've been abandoned because look at the situation around me. It looks like it's hopeless. It looks like God's up to no no good. Nothing is happening. But wait, what do we know? We know two things, and we will always know these two things. We know that God is sovereign, and we know that God is good. We know that God is sovereign, and we know that God is good. We know what he's like, and we know what he's doing. We know what he's up to. And in the midst of crazy theological oxymorons, like joy in the midst of sorrow and suffering, of of having uh, knowledge in the midst of uncertainty and having comfort in the midst of pain through the gospel, we can have joy no matter what comes. Can somebody say about you, you're different. You're different. You're going through this whole season differently. Why? And then could you be able to give them the the answer for the hope that you have within you. Corey Tenboom sure did. You remember her story? Um, she said it this way. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It just empties today of its strength. Worry is a cycle of inefficient thoughts whirling around a center of fear. But there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems. He only has plans. What's his final plan? Turn to Revelation. We'll end here. His final plan is Revelation chapter 21. And one day we will get to this eventually as we continue our series in Revelation. Revelation chapter 21 verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with his people. 
and I will dwell among them, and they shall be my people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, because the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. God, we long for that day. We long for the day when we, by your grace, will see you face to face. You will dwell with us. You will bring us back to a place where there is paradise. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more coronavirus, no more pandemics. And all will be well forever. But God, we know that that day isn't today. And we don't want to steal heaven's joys. We want to wait. We want to rest. Even as we've already sung today, we want to wait and rest in you and in your good designs, your good purposes. So Father, I pray that we would have joy in the midst of suffering. That we would know with the confident assurance what you're doing in the midst of uncertain times. And God, that we would have comfort through your spirit in the midst of pain. And God, maybe for some of us, it is this whole crazy season. But maybe for some of us, it's something yet to come. It's a trial that we have yet to experience. So Father, please help us in these moments. Prepare our minds to rehearse those questions. What is it that we're feeling? What do we think? What do we know to be true? And then work backwards. Based off of what we know, how should we think? And then how can we feel? Even in these moments as we sing, help us as we sing Scripture to take thoughts captive, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, to the obedience of Christ. To say, what is it that we know? Therefore, how should we think? We should live out what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 by the renewing of our minds that we would be transformed. And may we preach to our souls now through song, knowing that you are good. You have good purposes for us. And that you and your grace give us yourself in the midst of our greatest trials to give us hope, to give us a future, and to give us joy.